Most bankers aren't ready to help you until after their third cup of coffee. But with Central National Bank's after-hours service, you don't have to wait for the bank lobby to open to get help. You can contact us from 6 to 8.30 in the morning or from 5 to 10 in the evening, and we'll connect you to a real, live, local person who can answer questions and fix problems seven days a week. Bank different. Bank central. Central National Bank. Member FDIC. Welcome to Purpose Driven Sobriety. Thank you for joining Purpose Driven Sobriety. My name is Christine and I'm an alcoholic. Um, today's uh, show host is Taylor McGall. She's a realtor here in the Central Texas area, and Taylor just supports us in recovery, and um, she is just an amazing realtor that um, puts God and faith in, in customer service first. So if you're in the real estate market, check out Taylor McGall uh, on uh, Facebook for sure. She's a realtor here in Waco, Texas. So today um, we have a guest, um, Mr. Matt F. And Matt, do you practice in anonymity or may I use your name? No, you can use my name. Okay, Matt Fisher. Um, so, um, well, and on on the show, you know, Matt, we, what we do is we just simply share our experience, strength, and hope, uh, you know, with with the person who still suffers. This We try to keep this show as simple and authentic as possible. Um, we just share what it was like, what happened, and what we're like now, you know. Um, we just have, we're trying to recover out loud. So um, I met Matt in one of the, um, and I talk about this, it seems like every show, because I've interviewed people from just all around the country now, um, thank you God for that, um, that are willing to share their experience, strength, and hope with each other, but we, we met in one of the online um, Facebook uh, recovery groups, and um, and there's great recovery, you know, support in those things. You just like with any meeting, you want to be particular as far as go in, see if it fits. You know, in the interactions. There's one or two of them that are pretty um, controversial or combative, and it's just nobody needs that kind of shit. So just check check around and, and visit the individual, you know, the different recovery pages. It's a it's a good resource. So so Matt, thank you for taking the time to to join me. I know you've got some stuff going on in your life right now and um I just appreciate your willingness to sit down and and tell me your story. So I'm gonna just leave it to you. I'll ask probably ask you some questions if if uh if it's appropriate. But other than that, just tell me what it was like, what happened and what you're like now. Right. So um, Matt Fisher, alcohol drug addict. Hey, Matt. Um my my story is rather complicated. Um, I really it, it's kind of hard to tell because um, you know you just you don't know what you don't know until you do. And um, as recovery progresses, you know more will be revealed. Um, and so for me, I'll, I'll just start out with the basics. You know, in the beginning or whatever. Um, I'm 56 years old, born in 1966, uh, rural Missouri, um, grew up, you know, I have a um, fairly normal family. I'm the youngest of three siblings, uh, two older sisters. Um, my parents were married 51 years and my mom passed away or whatever. Um, there was drinking in the home or whatever, just kind of the casual weekend bashes or whatever. Um, 
and I don't know when when I was eight years old. Um, so really, my my story starts with trauma, mm-hmm. um, and uh, and I'll make some important distinctions as we get further along. In okay. Um, when I when I was eight, my mom tried to commit suicide, mm. and I was home alone. I was home alone with her, and figured out what was going on. And we lived in actually we actually lived in St. Louis at the time, and so. I ran to my uncle's to get my dad. You know, this was in day and age before 911. Um, and so, yeah, I'm running like 15 blocks in the city of St. Louis to go get my dad at my uncle's. Um, he survived, um, went on to the hospital or whatever. She was hospitalized for quite some time. And, you know, um, when you're a kid, you just don't know what's normal, what's not normal. Sure. Right. And so this was just an event that happened and I happened to be there and save her life. And, you know, as we kind of moved on from that, our family, um, my two older sisters begin, began to act out and kind of rebel or whatever. And I remember my mom and dad went out one night um, to a party or whatever. They were going out for the night on Friday night. So my two older sisters wanted to go out as well. And my mom said, well, you have to take your little brother with you um, or whatever. And so I ended up at a party with my sisters or whatever. And, you know, we're just kind of hanging out or whatever. And, um, you know, they're passing around this funny little cigarette or whatever. And I'm like, hey, I want some, you know. And they're like, no, you know, you're nine. And I'm like, I'm going to tell, you know, I'll tell mom. (laughs) And they're like, okay. You know, so they, they give me the joint. I don't really, I don't really remember, you know, being high or anything, feeling anything as a result Mm -hmm. of smoking marijuana the first time. And I hear that's a common experience, but my mom could tell when we got home and my mom and dad got back home, my mom was livid and she could tell. And so that was my first experience smoking pot, um, nine years old. And so we moved from St. Louis to rural Illinois in 78. And um, I took my first drink at about 13 years of age. Um, my first little drink was, you know, outside of the home or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I sipped on beers or, you know, here, there, and yonder prior to that. But, like, the first drinking experience outside of the home was I was 13 years old. I was with some friends. Um, we were driving around in a car. And I, I remember it like it was yesterday. I drank three split malt liquor beers. Wow. And got violently, got violently sick. Oh, I bet. Um, and I remember the next day. I got a hold of my buddy and I said, hey, if we're going to do this, I'm going to have to practice because I'm just not any good at this. <laughs> and so, you know, here we go. Right. And by, you know, age 13, 14 or whatever, I'm off and running. I'm, you know, smoking pot every day, drinking when I can or whatever. Um, my sisters, you know, they're they're pretty much out of control at that point or whatever. Um being with the wrong men and just everything. Um, so my oldest sister got into a relationship with a guy that she shouldn't have got into a relationship with. Ended up moving to Indiana with him and 
he was beating on her, abusing her um, physically. Mm. And she told my dad to come get him, come get her. And this guy had a really, this guy was, you know, notoriously violent and had a really bad reputation in our community. And so my dad, when he went to, to get her, he, he took a, he took a handgun with him um, just in case. And what ended up happening was um, the guy went after my dad when he got there to get my sister. Um, and there, there ended up being an altercation in which this, this guy was ended up being shot and killed. And mm. so, um, you know, my dad was arrested on first degree murder charges there in Indiana. Oh, wow. Um, and so, you know, um, ultimately. And so you were about 13, you were about 13 when that happened? I was a little bit younger. I was probably 11 or 12. Wow. Um, so, I mean, I had the kind of the, you know, the issue with my mom at eight, the issue with my dad at 11 or whatever. Right. And like, he, you know, he ultimately, he made bail. We, we got him bailed out. He went to trial. He was acquitted at trial. It was, it was deemed, you know, self-defense or whatever, but the damage was done. You know what I mean? Like, oh, sure. We lived, in a small, we lived in a small community and everybody was calling my dad a murderer. Like it was just, it was unreal. And so you know, by the age of 14, 15, you know, I was skipping school. Like, I didn't want to go to school anymore. I, you know, I stuck around school long enough to, to graduate with a driver's license at age 16. Um, and then, you know, my drinking and drug use pretty much just spiraled out of control. Um, I started having legal legal troubles at a young age um, for, for petty stuff. I was, you know, stoplifting. Um, currency kind of things. Um, I don't know. And then, you know, my drinking and drugging just, you know, just, it just spiraled out of control. And really, you know, over the years, um, like I was, if I had to put a, an age to it, I was probably chronic like 21 or so. And so, um, and that was about the age that I, I met my first wife uh, at about 21. We got together and um, we moved to Kentucky. And I didn't know this at the time, but we, we moved, yeah, from, I was in St. Louis at the time when I met her um, and moved to Kentucky or whatever. and got down there and was like, okay, you know, I'm going to head to the liquor store or whatever. And then I realized it's a dry county. Oh right? boy. <laughs> and I, you know, and I, That's and, I the worst. And, like, <laughs> and I come back home and I'm like, why didn't you tell me? She's like, you would have never came down here. If you didn't have him. Wow. You know, like, you realize how much gas money we're going to spend, you know, driving, you know, cause like, it's like, and, and I, you know, I don't know if you know what it's like to protect your supplier, make sure that you always have enough. Or right. Whatever. Oh, yeah. So if you're in that situation or whatever. It's like, okay, you know, I'm not just going down there to buy a case of beer. I'm going down there to fill the trunk. Now, exactly. You know, and like we've got cases of beer stacked in the closet. Stop you know, up. Yeah. It was, it, it was dumb, you know. Um, and I had a, my, my first child was born of that, that relationship back um, in 1993. Um, the only child of that relationship. Her and I ended up divorcing in uh, 97. Um, and, you know, 
through the years with her, I mean, I not only was it just drinking, it was drinking, smoking pot, using cocaine, you know, pills, methamphetamine, whatever. Right. Um, by that point, I was pretty much unemployable. Um, you know, I've had numerous odd jobs here, there, younger. Um, couldn't really get along with people. Um, had I had issues, you know, had issues with, um, you know, kind of fitting in with anybody or, you know, going along with any set mm-hmm. rules or schedule or, you know. Um, and so we, we divorced in 97 and, you know, I continued, you know, now that we were divorced or whatever. Um, and that, and the end of, and the end of that relationship just devastated me, um, which is really ironic to think back on because man i was i was not putting anything into that relationship other than heartache and damage right you know that's and, what we and do. taking everything out of it um and then for you know me to be so arrogant about being you know so heartbroken you know um when really i'd done this to myself mm-hmm. you know um and so about the year 2000, I met, I met this other, this other girl and she was, you know, by that point I had been, let me back up a little bit. Um, when I was 19, I tried to commit suicide. I, there was a feud between my dad and I, we got into an argument or whatever, and he threw a can of beer at my head or whatever, and I ended up trying to commit suicide. Well, when I woke up, um, I ended up in the hospital there in St. Louis. I um, ended up in a dual diagnosis unit there at Lutheran Hospital mm. in St. Louis, Missouri. And I was exposed to alcohol synonymous at the age of 19 years old and went to my first AA meeting um, there at that hospital or whatever. Um, then again, in, in 97, Right before we divorced, about six months prior to the divorce, I went into treatment to try and get sober and went through a 30-day residential program and then into a halfway program at that point. Um, and the God honesty part of it was that I was trying to save my marriage. Right. You know, I wasn't necessarily trying to be sober. Um, I was trying to save my marriage. Mm-hmm. And so when the divorce was finalized, like I, I left halfway and, you know, proceeded to do what I wanted to do. And that was pretty much just full on 110% just party, you know, just chaotic, you know, like absolute chaos. Um, And so, you know, in about a year after I was in treatment and after I, you know, at that point in my life, I was living in a motel. I was driving a truck for a living, um, if you can imagine that. Um, about a year after I was, you know, out of treatment or whatever, I had drank the way that I wanted to drink unsupervised and uncontrolled, you know, long enough that I realized that I probably ought to do something, that I probably ought to get some help. And I tried to go back into treatment. Um, in Illinois, where I went originally, and unfortunately, the, the treatment center had caught on fire. Oh my! And so they were not paying people. Um, so, in the meantime, I met this other lady. You know, like so. 
you know, it's to my way of thinking, it was the next best thing. You know, like he can fix me or whatever, whatever I thought I was going to get out of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we were together for about seven years, and I ended up about 2002. Um, she got pregnant with what would be my middle child, Michael, and. You know, I felt a great deal of shame, guilt, and remorse about how badly I was failing my oldest son as a father, right? I mean, it, it gnawed away at me. Um, it really did. And so when she got pregnant or whatever, I was looking at her, and it was like it was just this conviction of, oh, my God, I'm going to do it again. I'm going to I'm gonna bring another kid into this world. Right. You know, and be just this major piece of shit, you know, Mm -hmm. never going to be there or whatever. And so that was a moment of clarity for me. I, you know, I, I decided then and there that that was unacceptable to me. And I didn't know how I was going to get out of the lifestyle because by that point, you know, I was, you know, I had been unemployable, you know, prior to that, but by that point, I truly was unemployable. Right. Um, had, had a bunch of misdemeanor, criminal charges, just stupid stuff, you know, criminal damage to property and possession of paraphernalia, just, you know, like 20 misdemeanors. Um, had finally caught a couple of felonies, actually went to prison in the state of Illinois for like 10 months in the year 2000. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, got out and went right back to doing what I was doing or whatever. Like there was, there was really no consequence for me. I just took me a long time to be able to say this to kind of put words to how I, how I felt and how I lived. But for the longest time, I didn't have a problem with my problems. Right. Um, I don't know if that makes any sense Mm -hmm. to anybody else or not, but it's, you know, that's, that's how I felt about it, is I didn't have a problem with my problem until that second pregnancy came along. And things started to change for me. I I didn't know how I was going to pull this off as far as, I mean, we're talking about for somebody like me coming out of chronic, you know, years of chronic, Use, decades yeah. of chronic, um, you know, my whole lifestyle was centered on that and so it wasn't just one thing that I had it was it was literally everything you know and so I just kind of started chipping away um went back to treatment in like 2004 um stayed sober for about a year you know had a had a really great year had a great sponsor Mm -hmm. um you know the littlest thing happened and it set me off and I ended up relapsing in 2004 Mm. and so um, you know, I kept, I kept trying to kind of plug it away at, at sobriety from like 2004 to 2007. Um, I, you know, was in and out back and forth, had, you know, had a drawer full of 24 hour coins, you know, just couldn't fit any time together. Sure. Um, wanting to want it is what my sponsor said. You want to want it, you know, but you're just not a hundred percent convinced. Right. Um. And then in 2007, you know, this girl that I was with, her and I got into it, and he kicked me out, and, you know, I had to call my dad, and I'm like, hey, can you come give me a ride? And he's like, yeah, you know, he didn't ask any questions or whatever, and so he pulls up 
the firm's built out, and here I am with my IGA suitcases and all everything I own throwing it in the back of his Tahoe. And he's like, Where are we going? And I'm like, To your house. <laughs> and he's like, You got to get past your mom, right? You know, and so let me back up in the story a little bit about my dad. My dad is also an alcoholic, and I can say that. I can say that about him because he was a member of Alcoholics Anonymous for a number of years. He did ultimately end up getting sober. Um, my mom was also an Al-Anon. And so over the years or whatever, dealing with my parents, um, like they wouldn't help me unless I would go to meetings or, you know, like there was always conditions on them and, and me. Right. And so when I showed up on her doorstep in 2007, um, she just looked at me and let me in, you know, she must have seen something, you know, or sensed something about it was serious and, you know, I wasn't joking. So they were um, working their programs. Yes. Gotcha. Yes. Um, and so... I, I call December 7th of 2007 my original sobriety date. Um, it's not my final sobriety date. I went back out after that. But, you know, there was, I was standing on her porch, and the messaging that I was getting in that moment of clarity was it's not about me anymore. Um, and, you know, four days later, my youngest son ended up in ICU on life support. Um, there in Illinois or whatever from a near drowning incident. Oh my! And and I'm standing there in the hospital going, you know, and I and it's like clear as day. It's like I understand, you know, I, every nerve in my body screaming. I'm four days sober or whatever, but it's like, you know, this is your purpose. This is why you're here. Like, mm-hmm. it's it's not about you anymore. And um, so that started um. That started a you know a, a progress of recur- recovery for me. Um, I got about I got sober in 2007. Got about 11 months and was terrified because I'd never been sober that long before. And I was fortunate enough that I didn't have a license. I had gotten a DUI. And I needed a license um, because I had a job, and I had some DUI counseling that I had to do, and so I went back to those treatment centers instead of, you know, okay, I need to do some outpatient DUI counseling. And they brought me in and did my evaluation and all that stuff. And I met with their therapist or whatever. And she was a nice older lady and, you know, and I, I just, I just spilled the beans. I said, man, I said, I'm here to do, you know, 125 hours of DUI counseling. I said, really, I'm 11 months sober and I'm scared shitless because I've never been sober before for long, you know. And um, I, I told her, I said, I know that you have to do, you know, like prevention and education and all this stuff. I said, but we could just talk about, you know, me staying sober, you know, as we go or whatever. That would probably be the bigger deal. I said, I know not to drink and drive. Right. You know, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure that out. <laughs> um, I think the key to, to not, you know, the key to DUI prevention for me is not drinking. Right. You know. Um, and so she went along with that and I, and it, you know, it was, I had, 
you know, I had a great sponsor at the time. I had actually two, two, two guys that were close to me that were sponsoring me. Um, one lived about three blocks up the road, and then the other one, you know, 10 miles down the road. But we were a pretty tight group, went through the steps with them. Um, I had, you know, and for whatever reason, my mom and dad, in the year 2000, my mom and dad sold me the home that they, they lived in. They co-signed a loan for me to buy the house that they lived in, and they bought a different house. And so by about 2001 or whatever, I'm like, I just left. You know what I mean? Like, I, I can't pay the bills. I can't do nothing or whatever. They rented it out. And so, you know, I had this, I had this home that I wasn't living in that I wasn't paying for. And about 2008 or so, my mom and dad um, – we're talking about filing bankruptcy and I was living with them for, you know, for that first year mm-hmm. or so. And they were talking about filing bankruptcy and that house was included in the bankruptcy. And I said, I was thinking, I was like, well, if they file bankruptcy on the house, then the bank's going to sue me because I'm the original loan holder on that property. Right. And like, it, it occurs to me that, I can either pay for a house I live in or I can pay for a house I don't live in, right? Mm-hmm. And so I looked at my mom and dad and I said, I'm going to go back down to Washington Street and I'm going to go back and take over that loan and live there in that house. And they just looked at me like they're shocked and surprised. And I had to go to the bank and I had to make a bunch of amends and straighten a bunch of financial stuff out and like, you know, kind of a big deal. Um, and so I started living back in that house. Um, and that's where I stayed. And I heard, there was a lady, I met people on the internet. I've always been part of internet recovery, whether it be chat rooms or Zoom meetings or whatever, because there's just been points in time where, for whatever reason, I couldn't get around or couldn't get away, you know, and sure. it's always kind of filled a need for me. And I met a lady a number of years ago down in um, Alabama, Georgia, wherever she was originally from. And, um, cause I was, when I first got sober, you know, in 2007, I had a huge identity crisis. I had been drinking and drugging so long that I didn't even, I didn't even know who I was. Oh, I so, totally understand that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was talking to her about it and she says, we go back to let me know. And I said, what the hell is that? You know, and in her infinite wisdom, she got up and never said another word um, and let me define that for myself. Right. You know, and I don't know, I, my, my three boys had come one weekend, you know, down to my house or whatever, and I had made a big pot of beef and noodles and mashed potatoes and just all this, this big, huge meal, and we were all sitting there eating it or whatever. And it just kind of dawned on me that, like, this was this was one of the things of we go back to what we know. Like, it was just this big, you know, family gathering at the table with all of us eating and just, you know, visiting with each other and having a good time. Mm-hmm. Um, that was one of the aspects of, you know, the things things that I had been taught um, that I kind of carried forward. I didn't, I didn't understand. It didn't even dawn on me. I, I didn't comprehend that there may be a darker aspect to things. We, you know, we go back to what we know, and if right. that happens to, and if that happens to be trauma dysfunction, then 
so be it, you know. Um, so, I don't know, 2010 or so, you know, um, my mom um, was terminally ill, goes into the hospital, and she ultimately ends up passing away in February 2010. Um, my mom and I were very close, you know. Um, she had worked a long time. She worked a long time to, to try and undo some of the damage of what originally happened all those years ago. She never come straight out and looked at anybody and said, here's what happened, here's what needs to happen, this is what I want you to do. Mm-hmm. She was always that person that led by example and never said a word, right? Mm. And when I, all these years now that when I look back on how things shook out or whatever, um, my mom absolutely did the best that she possibly could do to redeem herself for, for those actions all those years ago. Right. And was there in every conceivable way. I held her hand as she took her last breath and she passed away. Um, mm. It was about two years over. She was buried with my coin. Um, and I also met a lady. A lady came back into my life at that point that I had known when I went to school. We had known each other since we were about 16. Oh, wow. And so we, yeah, we kind of got together and um, I don't know. It was, there was a lot going on at that time. I (laughs) kind of back up here. Um, The second job that I had in recovery, I really absolutely loved. And so this was about a year before my mom passed away. Um, this job laid me off, right? And I was livid, right? I mean, I was just devastated mm-hmm. that I had been laid off. My, well, my sponsor took me to the unemployment office. That You know, I didn't have a license, so I called him. And I'm like, they're laying me off. He's like, okay, I'll come get you. You know, I get in the car, and I'm just wah, 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 wah. You know, it's all about me, and he's driving me to the unemployment office or whatever, you know. Um, so I sign up for unemployment, I go home and, you know, I'm bitching and complaining for like three months straight about this this shitty deal. You know, and and when I look back on my behavior now, I I really kind of adopted a, a fuck it attitude. I, I I I don't think I had the courage to go drink. You know what I mean? To like just overtly go out and drink or right. whatever, but I think there was I think there was enough toxic, bad behavior in me to kind of dance with the devil on the peripheral of, you know, some really questionable behaviors. And so when I got into the relationship with this lady, and I won't go into details about that, but it was not honor. Um, She was with somebody else when we met up, and then we met up. Um, Sure. So basically she left one person to be with me. And um, we ultimately – you know, stayed together about 10 years. I mean, things kind of just unfolded with my family, you know, with my dad and my sisters. In 2018, so um, there was a blow up between my dad and I. Let me back up. I apologize. Um, early recovery, about 2009, 2010, I was having all these. I'd never been sober before that long and so what I was thinking and experiencing you know as I read the book of Alcoholics Anonymous you know I was trying my best to work through the steps and you know address 
everything that was going on with me. And what, what was going on with me is I was having a lot of, a lot of fear, a lot of irrational fear, um, a lot of anxiety, a lot of insomnia, um, kind of a sense of impending doom type thing mm-hmm. or whatever. And, you know, for whatever reasons, you know, I had a job, I, you know, and, you know, I, had to go to work i couldn't lay in bed all night and you know worry or whatever and so i ended up going to my family doctor who put me on ativan for sleep Mm. and so you know her her and i together i don't know 2012 or so you know, things are going bad with my, my children's mom. She's, she's also got a substance abuse issue. And, you know, um, things go from bad to worse and to worse. He can't take care of the boys or whatever. And it's looking like I'm going to have to go out of custody of them. And so in 20, yeah, 2013, 2014, I did um, got custody of, you know, my two youngest children. And, you know, here was, and at this point in time, I still owed my first wife a significant amount of child support, back child support for my oldest son, you know, and she was not very happy with me um, at that point. And so I was obviously, you know, having to pay her money and like just everything was a mess. I ended up with a lien on my house for back child support for my oldest, um, you know, had a lot of debt from that. Um, she turned me in for Basically, she turned me in um, for the back out support or whatever, and it was a big chunk of money, and oh my God, what am I going to do, you know, and it was just like anything else, it was one step at a time, um, so the Ativan, it wasn't just a six-week thing, and they discontinued it, it was, they left me on it, um, and what ended up happening was over time, I had to end up like I would sleep three or four hours maybe at night and then I would wake up and I would have to take more to go back to sleep. Mm-hmm. And so, and I was going back to the doctor and telling him, you know, what was going on. And he, he just gave me more of a prescription in order to do that. Um, and so by about 2015, 2016, you know, it's, it's clear to me that I'm addicted to Ativan, you know, for sleep and, you know, I'm, I'm, You know, if I if I take some, go to sleep, and then I wake up in the middle of the night and have to take more to achieve the same effect. I mean, that's pretty right. much kind of a classic definition of you know what addiction is mm-hmm. um, or addictive behaviors. Sure. Um, and so I, you know, I'm talking to people and talking to my sponsors, and you know, going to the meetings, and you know, I've just got this big huge spiritual disconnect. That's what I felt at first was like, you know, the separation. You know. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, by that point, I, I, I had, you know, officially announced that I had technically relapsed on, on prescription medication. Right. And I didn't, and I didn't know what to do. Um, I was open about that admission. I, you know, um, I didn't hide it from people, but I did quit showing up at meetings. I didn't really want to talk about it because, you know, here I am, I'm married. I got, you know, kids in the house, like life is, is, you know, pretty good for me um my relapse wasn't like 
I just fell off the deep end and sure. straight to hell. You know what I mean? It was, right. a, it was a prescription medication and a thinking problem relapse. Um, well, but there's there's still that when you when you know that it's technical when you know that it is is a relapse there is shame that starts oozing in that gets you to you know do to stay away from you know the solution I get that too I mean because you yeah I mean you just there's shame keeps you from the meetings keeps you from calling that sponsor you know when there's been a relapse. The other thing. The other thing, you want to talk about the shame or whatever, there were things that were going on in my marriage that I did not want to discuss with other people. Right. Um, the level of dysfunction in my third marriage um, was by 2013, 2014, 2015. Like I, I, I would talk to my sponsor about it. We would swap, you know, stuff back and forth about our relationships or whatever. But there was there was it was clear to me that a choice was going to have to be made. It was going to be either or, not both. Mm. Um, like both couldn't coexist because there was a lot of dishonesty and just you know. Sure. Um, so I'm to a point in my life where um, I don't want to condemn anybody or badmouth anybody or whatever. We all have our crosses to bear, and we all. You know, we all have our own unique set of circumstances mm -hmm. and characteristics that make us who we are. You know, we're just fortunate enough to have a program that blesses us with a with a method Solution. of addressing right. specific situations. Um, and no matter how much we wish that other people would choose the life that we live, or even a spiritual life at best, you know, just self improvement or whatever. Um, that's a pipe dream, you know, on our own. <laughs> mm -hmm. Like we, mm -hmm. you know, we we can uh, you know, we can attract, we can't promote. And um, so yeah, let me get you know get back on task here. By about 2015 or so, I, my dad asked me to be the executor of the state and you know, power of attorney and, and all that. Um, him and my oldest sister had gotten into it. Um, and so he wanted to change his will. I'm like, yeah, that's cool, you know, whatever. Um, well, when my mom passed away, my dad drank again. Um, my dad started drinking again after my mom passed away. Mm. And um, it about killed him. I mean, he, they were together, you know, 50, 51 years. Wow. So when, when he passed away or whatever, he was just lost. I mean, um, He just about didn't survive that, to be quite honest with you. And then he ultimately he regrouped or whatever, but he didn't go back. He didn't go back to A. He didn't go back into recovery right. or whatever. So, you know, here I am tasked with this this responsibility for my father, and you know, me being the self-centered, egotistical person that I am, I'm just truly honored to have been chosen. Um, you know, I, I feel like it's a huge it's a huge ego stroke for me for him to ask me to do that. Well, the problem is, is my dad pretty much does what he wants and nobody's going to really tell him what to do. So mm -hmm. you, you can ask somebody to do those things for you, 
But if you're not cooperating with or have any intentions of going along with what you've written down, then it's all pie in the sky at that point. It's more of a manipulation than it is um, anything legitimate. And so in 2018, things kind of hit the fan between him and I. He was having some issues with his house. Things were falling apart. He wasn't taking care of it. And um, we got into it um, because it was like, what are you doing? You know, like, um, and he got really mad at me, got, you know, super angry and disowned me, um, told me to get out of his house and never come back and all that. And so I went back home. And, you know, the thing about my dad is, is you know, I've, I've never really seen him that angry or whatever. And so when I went back home, I knew that he was serious or whatever. He called the sheriff's department and had a no trespassing order, you know, placed on me or whatever so I could come to his house mm-hmm. or whatever. And so I sat there for like the next year and just kind of grieved, you know, what had transpired, you know, pretty much like the loss of my father at that point because, um, I didn't know that the relationship could be salvaged, you know, because he was that adamant. I mean, he said some things that were just beyond comprehension mm-hmm. to me. Um, and so I began, I began a, a, a period of time of deep reflection and soul searching. And so I was, you know, sitting in my house, home, you know, with my, my kids and my wife or whatever, thinking about what transpired with my dad and just how abnormal all this is, you know, like, this is not what normal people do. And then it kind of, it kind of crept into me that this is just, this is all just so dysfunctional. It's not even funny, right? And that was kind of a, the first revelation that I had about it. And I started doing some digging. I started doing some research and started looking into ACA, um, adult children of alcoholics, mm-hmm. and did a couple of Zoom meetings and was reading their literature or whatever. And so, like the the revelations for me came pretty quickly within a, a you know a year or so. It dawned on me that you know I came to the conclusion that. Um, you know, I, I did in fact have the trauma and the, the symptoms that I was experiencing in early recovery were to the best that I could account were like classic PTSD symptoms. Sure. Um and you know, that my you know, my biological family, my dad and my sisters were highly dysfunctional, you know. And so with that being said, it was kind of like, oh my gosh, you know, like, and I wasn't really working on their inventory. I was working, you know, I was working more on mine or whatever. And, you know, it wasn't long before I looked at the relationship with my wife and I, and I knew that, you know, um, this is not good. This is not going to work out probably for me because I've been making decisions and living my life in such a way that absolutely putting me in harm's way, you know. Um, And so one of the very first things I did was I tried to get, and I did try to get providers to help me discontinue the Ativan over the years, and all of them refused. And um, so in 2020, I tried to get the hospital to do a medical detox on me for the Ativan, and they refused. Um, 
And so I drank and presented to the emergency room for alcohol intoxication and alcohol detox. And so I went through detox that way um, in the hospital to get off the Ativan in 2020. And then um, I didn't go back to the meetings of recovery right away. I took about a, you know, coming off, like coming off benzodiazepines after about, you know, 11 years on them, I was, for all intents and purposes, I had a nervous breakdown. I was jelly, you know, I, I was non-functioning. And, you know, credit to Michelle, my wife, you know, for taking care of me and the boys during that period of time when she didn't have to, you know. Sure. Um, and so it took about, a, you know, it took about a year to get, you know, somewhat functional. I went back to AA in April of 2020, no, March 22nd of 21 is my sobriety date. That's what I claim. Mm-hmm. And she packed up and left in April. <laughs> that happens. Um, it happens, you know. And and here again, I'm just absolutely devastated, you know. Mm-hmm. Just, you know, I don't know what it is about me in relationships, but you know, I I find these people and I put all this stuff on them, and you know, and yeah, um, you know, we find you know, depending on and what we're all, you know, depending on what we're after, we find like-minded people, you know, and. So that was really hard. I was in early, again, in early recovery, but with some experience, you know, facing the end of a relationship, um, you know, didn't really have my dad or anybody, my sister, you know, didn't really talk to either one of them. Mm -hmm. Um, So it was really rough. And then then in December of 2021, I decided to sell my house and move to Indiana. My oldest son lives in Indiana. Um, ultimately, I did pay Stan, his mother, all that child support that I owed her. Good. Um, got all that, you know, got all, all my financials are done. Like, I didn't, you know, there was the amends that I picked up, you know, the new step work or whatever is based on, you know, pretty much the last 10 years or whatever of, of that, that relationship and that mm-hmm. marriage and the people involved, my dad and my sister. Um, so... Where we lived in rural Illinois, I have a disabled son. My my middle child is disabled, and so um, there's just not a whole lot of help and resources in rural Illinois for for a kid like him. And so when the opportunity came up, when when he left or whatever, word of war thing, I started thinking about, and I had thought about this before about moving closer to my son. And um, so opportunity and circumstances kind of came together. Um, Indiana has like a, a wonderful, a wonderful state for, for somebody like my son. But the upside of that is, is I didn't know before I lived, before I moved here, that it's also a wonderful state for somebody like me, because I had been to some meetings in like Terre Haute, Indiana, and I knew they had a big recovery community. Um, I didn't actually moved to Terre Haute. I moved to a town called Clinton, Indiana, which was about 15 miles north. Um, I moved to this town with Quentin. I knew they had a meeting, but I couldn't find it anywhere on the website. Like the website was down. And mm-hmm. so I just moved side up thing into this without going to a meeting. And I got here and I, and I couldn't have walked into a better circumstance um, if I tried mm-hmm. because 
like even in Illinois, like mental health providers, like even trying to get diagnosed for PTSD or, you know, addressing any of that stuff, um, you know, there just, there was no available providers. They were far and few between. Right. And when you get over here, there's funding out the wazoo for this, right? And you have treatment centers everywhere. You have mental health providers everywhere. Like, and so we moved here and I immediately began engaging in like, the local AA group get involved in my home group or whatever, and um, I'm well, intergroup rep for Clinton, Indiana. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, got my kids in therapy, and I started going to therapy or whatever, and um, you know, come to understand, you know, the have a therapist that, that understands the dynamics of what I've, you know, what's going on and what, what, what I've been through right. or whatever, PTSD diagnosis and we were working on that. And so, you know, kind of the, the you know, the big, biggest part of my story is oftentimes when we're in the circle of the meetings or whatever, um, we will, you know, I, I said, I said this in a meeting, I said, I didn't have a problem with my problem. And another guy, another guy with, you know, not a whole lot of time, walked up and said, man, I really like that. That really kind of fits, you know, where I was coming from. And I walked out of the meeting and I thought, man, I got to be careful because, you know, um, some of these things that I'm saying is not, not necessarily normal, you know, um, it can be, kind of lead you down a path to outside issues or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, when you think about what that means, not having a problem with your problem, basically means I don't care what happens to myself. Like I, you know, I don't think enough of myself to care. And so I've really kind of become mental health focused. Like I really listen to what people are talking about or saying in the meetings. And I, you know, I don't, dare ever want to see somebody else slip through the cracks of, you know, having undiagnosed PTSD or an outside issue that they can't get help or resources with. And I understand that I am not qualified to say anything to anybody about their condition or whatever. Right. Um, I'm to the point in my life that if I see somebody, you know, struggling in early recovery, you know, that's completely normal. You know, a couple of years in, you know, you're still having a lot of bugaboos and uh, weird thoughts and feelings or whatever. I mean, I feel like shouldn't we be recommending a mental health assessment, you know, in a couple of years if people are still really having issues or whatever. Not officially in the meetings, but kind of unofficially, you know, as friends or whatever because, um, you know, come to find out, you know, the the trauma didn't make me an alcoholic. The trauma didn't make me an addict. Um, that was a completely separate issue. The fact that I needed to practice in order to drink again made me an alcoholic. Mm. You know, um, the fact that, you know, that thought crossed my mind that, man, if I'm going to be any good at this, I'm going to have to practice. And I, you know, I'll never forget saying that because it was so, you know, I was serious, you know when I said it, and, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, and 
feed into the other, but it combined when you combine the two edges, it, it does something. Well, you get a per you get a perfect storm. You take the genetic disposition, which first and foremost, you know, is 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 present. Then you throw a trauma into the into the stew, you know, if you will. And then you throw, you know, the um, access to trying a substance for the first time into the stew. And, and all of a sudden, it, it, you've got a brew going that there's, you know, it's just the, the perfect storm. You know, so, so yeah, we, we do have to be real careful, you know, to not make too, too many suggestions to, to too many people in the sense that, you know, again, we, we are still walking sick people. But if you are honestly, honestly working a program of recovery and still having, you know, some, some issues and turmoil, then absolutely you should seek. And hopefully you have aligned yourself with a sponsor that will say, that will know enough to, and, and have enough experience to say, here's my suggestion to you. You know, take it, don't take it, but maybe taking one step further to throw in because there's a lot of my my personal friends that have you know their program of recovery working with AA in a OA throw an A on there whatever it is and they also have therapists counselors life coaches you know something else to layer you know on top of that program of recovery so yeah i'm all for it and in the dual diagnosis i mean my goodness you know the not only the trauma the ptsd but you know the the actual um physiological changes in the brain to where there there is required some time medication you know which is which is okay you know uh, uh, to do and to take in recovery you know when when done properly so so yeah i mean you know once i i just think it's real important to know that those suggestions need to come from from experienced full-on in recovery you know person that has worked that is and has worked a program and knows you know a little bit more than than the person that the, that they're counseling i think that's super important oh. I agree. And, and, you know, for me, I mean, I, I have a, you know, my sponsor that I've worked with since I've been here, uh, a pretty close friend group or whatever that I'm in contact with all the time. And mm -hmm. I have my therapist, you know, um, I've been with her for, for over a year or whatever. And the people around me know that, like, you know, this is kind of my big thing is, like, man, we see somebody that we see struggling or whatever, especially we've got a guy in our circle now 16 years over and he's just absolutely about to drink, mm -hmm. you know, and how, you know, how could we suggest getting him in front of a mental health professional to, to make sure that there's nothing else going on, you know? Um, yeah. I don't know. A lot of, a lot of people have to have to find their, find their way. You know, I mean, like I said, I think it, I don't, I don't know. I, I, I personally in, in several groups, you know, here, here local. And, and I just think that we try to be really super careful, um, getting out of our lane, if you will. No, I understand that. And, and that's, you know, slope. nobody has said, and I haven't said it either. I, cause my thing is, is like, I talk about my story, you know, he's heard we're, we're friends. He heard my story. And if there's things that he identifies with and he wants to talk about, there you go, or whatever, right? Because you know we're back to the whole attraction rather than promotion. Amen. Thing because I, 
I am not entitled to promote my agenda in the fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous or any other fellowship mm-hmm. for that matter. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just, it just goes right through me to see others struggling. Oh, know? I know and, it. Yeah, we we feel their pain. But I'll tell you what, there's, you know, I, I heard something in, in, in from my sponsor, you know, very early on in recovery, but it had to do with dealing with one of my adult children and, you know, me seeing him going down a certain path and I'm just like, I can, you know, I need to tell him. And she's like, mm, yeah, no, you don't. You know, if he comes to you and asks you, then obviously you can share even if he's not one of us and hopefully he won't be at some point. But, you know, that's up to between he and his maker. But uh, if he comes to you, you're welcome to share your experience, strength and hope. But aside from that, you stay out of God's way. And that was profound when I heard that because she said, God is working on him just like God was working on you. So had someone stepped in and, 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 you know, thrown their opinions, which, you know, a lot of most of us have a lot of those. Right. Um, And and, and whatnot at you that that could have interfered, you know, what God was trying to do for you. So you stay in your lane, stay out of God's way and let him. And when when God needs you, he'll call you up and you'll know that it's time to share. You know, I, I think that that was that was a very profound that I use all the time with sponsees and with other people in my life. It's like stay out of God's way. We do not know best. We are the last people who know best. You know, all we have is our experience, is, strength, and hope. That's so true. And I, I was recently having a conversation with a, 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 an older member of a program or whatever about intuitive thoughts and actions or whatever. And I kind of leaned in real close and I said, have you ever feel, you know, compelled? Like you're just supposed to talk to some random stranger like you just, somebody mm-hmm. you know like it's just overwhelming um and she's just grinning at me she's like yeah and i'm like okay so i'm not completely off my bone you know completely off my rocker here or whatever <laughs> and so one of the things i've been working with with my therapist is you know and and i think the timing of you know coming coming to you and the podcast and everything is um really no 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 it's not a coincidence it's it's divine simply because i i hear you talking about the authenticity you know and um just you know just being real um the authentic self mm-hmm. and without shame I don't know, it was, yeah yeah and I was, you know, I actually, I haven't had a, a chance to go through a bunch of podcasts or whatever, and I listened to yours, and I was dying. I was cracking up because it was, and I, no offense or whatever, but a lot of the, a lot of the things that you were sharing or whatever was like, I was, we were, I was talking about this last night with somebody else about, you know, I wanted to congratulate you on not having MS or brain tumor, um, <laughs> because, you know, this is a super common story, like, I have no idea. Yeah, I remember standing in the front yard of my mom and dad's house, 13 years old, and I intuitively know that something was horribly wrong. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And I can't, and I cannot put my finger on it. Right. To save my life, I could not articulate what was wrong. I didn't have the words. I had the instinct to know that something was horribly wrong. Right. But I didn't know. 
didn't know how to act on it, and I didn't know what to say. Well, and, and we're the and we're the last ones that we look at. I and what you just for those that are listening, um, what Matt is talking about is the first, the very first episode of Purpose Driven Sobriety. I'm telling my story, and I I had gotten to a point which you know whenever i would try to stop drinking within within 72 hours i would go into seizures and so i was convinced that i i mean good lord don't go to google dr google is not your friend um but i was convinced i had a brain tumor i uh, all kinds of different i was diagnosing myself and i never occurred to me it was the you know half or three three quarters a gallon of vodka I was drinking. Never even occurred to me. It was crazy, the the idea that that it could actually be something I was doing to myself. That's nuts, completely nuts. So yeah, I I know exactly what you're talking about. I knew I knew something was wrong, but I knew it wasn't me, and that was exactly what was wrong. Exactly. Yeah, I, and you know, we've been, we've been here in Indiana now for two years and I've been, I've, you know, after this, this last go round or whatever with the relationship with my ex or whatever, I've decided that one, I'm going to take the time to invest in myself and really get to understand and know who I am beyond all these, because there's, you know, a lot of, there was a lot of really deep revelations with, you know, the past five years or whatever about dysfunction and trauma and sure. and just all this other stuff or whatever. And so I I kind of promised myself that I was going to stay single and not pursue another relationship with anybody. Not that anybody's beating down my door anyway, but like um, I wanted to really kind of heal and recover. Mm-hmm. Um, work on yourself. Yeah, work on myself, you know, because the thing of it is, and, and you know, there was a lot, of, so moving to Indiana, there was a lot that went with that because you know you have to understand that house that i sold was the house that my parents arranged for me to be in Mm -hmm. you know what i mean and then like the will of my you know my dad or whatever they were going to leave me that house and you know i when everything hit the fan and when i decided to move it was kind of like okay i can sit here and write it out and this will be as good as it gets you know and my son you know he won't get the services that that he needs or whatever, mm-hmm. and this will just be how, how it, how it is, you know, how it is. Right. That that all became unacceptable to me. I I knew that nothing nothing changes know. if nothing changes. I was never gonna know. I would, you know, I was never gonna know who I was or what I was capable of until I stepped out. Mm-hmm from under all of that and went and found out, you know? And so, you know, my dad and my sister wasn't a part of my life when I moved. And, um, you know, within the last, I don't know, year or so or what go, him and I began talking and, you know, I made my amends to him and he made amends to me. Oh, that's good. Um, and, you know, like I, you know, I was telling you in text, I, you know, she's been in the hospital for the last 15 days. She's at the end stages of COPD in hospice or whatever. And so, you know, I, I wanted, you know, I, there was a part of me that just wanted to sleep today. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? 
like just rest and recuperate and and all that and i you know i think it's worth bearing with you know witness to the incredible strength and survivability that we're we're given um we don't i, I don't think often realize how strong we really are mm -hmm. um, to live the lives that we've lived you know in active tradition or whatever and then you know oftentimes in recovery it's just like oh my god i'm so tired i'm so weak it's getting to me and you know the, the reality of it is, is we went for days and days and days you know not not blinking an eye you know and um i really wanted to make sure that i i did come on here and give my message regardless of what's going on in my life or how i felt about what's going on in my life today um simply because you know that next person out there needs to know that no matter you know no matter what's going on in your life no matter what you're facing um you too can get through it um you don't have to do it alone you know absolutely reach out don't be afraid to talk about you know your life your story mm -hmm. um there's There's no shame for men, you know, for men and childhood trauma and, you know, dysfunction and PTSD. That's all really super taboo. What I'm finding is, you know, the men will admit they have background, you know, outside issues or whatever, mm -hmm. you know, privately, you know, people they super trust or whatever. But as a general rule of thumb, what I'm finding kind of like in the groups and just in general with with men is, you know, it's still really taboo um, for us to admit that, you know, we had any kind of background issues going on growing up right. or whatever. Um, and that's another one of those sidebar barriers that, you know, we, you know, absolutely as a society we need to smash whatever because, you know, we we take on all this responsibility and stuff and until we're whole and healed or whatever we can't have whole and healed families and relationships right um and so well yeah. i'm i'm so grateful that you took the time I, I know that you're going through that with your dad and 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 um you know you're certainly in and he is certainly in my prayers you know it's one of those things too that you know, life is going to keep doing life regardless of whether we're in recovery or not. Um, at least in recovery, we stand a chance to be of service to others, which I, I personally, um, with my faith, believe that that's where it's all at. It's not about us. And so I, I certainly, I know you are, but I'm certainly, it, it, I can't get off of here without saying, I'm going to encourage you stay close to your recovery community while you're going through this this trauma that uh, you know with with your dad um and his health and and going into hospice and stuff you know stay stay close to your recovery community because 100 percent of the time 100 without fail when someone has relapsed they stop doing what they needed to be doing to be in recovery in the first place regardless of what life's doing life is going to keep doing life but you have got to stay connected so, you know, um, I, I'm, I'm praying for you. I'm grateful that you took the time to come on here and, and share your, your story. 
um, of experience, strength, and hope, and, and you will touch someone, and, and nothing happens in God's world by mistake. We know that. Our book tells us that. But do please stay close, close to your recovery community while you go through this. I just lost my dad last year, so I'm speaking of full-on experience. Um, and, and the fact is, is when you can stand back, Matt, and, and have the gratitude of realizing that you are present and you are helpful to your father during this time, you're going to look back on that and see a strength in yourself that you never knew you had. So, yeah, lean into that, lean into your recovery community, and, and of course, lean into God because uh, he will certainly see you through this. I, I already have a sense of gratitude and a sense of um, authenticity about, you know, doing all that or whatever, Good. simply because, um, you know, I've, I've, been through, I've been through that with my mom. Um, and that was that was the hard one. It took me about six months. I mean, I really shut everybody out. Mm-hmm. Um, but and I hear what you're saying, or whatever. My, you know, my recovery community and family is first. It it means the world to me, Good. or whatever. Like, um, there's 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 really no isolating or hiding from them because they all know where I live. Like, <laughs> yeah, they won't leave me alone. You can you can uh, run, but you can't hide. <laughs> We do we do carry in dinners once a month and I feed them really well. That's you know what amazing. I mean? Like I'm always cooking the main dish for them or sometimes or whatever. Like they, you know, that's my thing. That's you know, it's good. like the big meal with that's the family. Good. Well, going back to that because somebody asked me, it was like, why do you go so overboard? You know, with the carry in dinners. And I'm like, because you're my family. It's gratitude. It's like, gratitude. You know. Well, um, so yeah, no, there's, you know, and. and in order to be there, you know, for him, regardless, you know, and the thing of it is, is that man wants a beer more than anything in the world right now, mm. you know, and I know that, um, and he's 84 years old, he's living his last days, and I, I, I don't have any ill will or any ill feelings about any of it or whatever, I'm perfectly at peace with who he is and what he is and where he's Good. at in life, because, Good. you know, you, you know, you get to a point where some things just don't matter anymore. Yep, and, we're all on know. our path. Well, we're com- we're coming to the end of uh, of our time. I wanted to ask you. So tell me, um, tell me what you would say to the person who is um, who is still struggling right now. What what's your what's your final words of wisdom, Matt? Don't give up. Don't do not give up. It's so cliche. You know, don't. Don't leave before the miracle happens. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Listen, you what? know, listen to these old timers around the table. They know what they're talking they about. They do, man. They they certainly they certainly do. Sometimes they don't have a very good bedside manner, but that some you know, it's it, getting the message. It's not in necessarily how it's delivered. It's how it's received. So we uh, often need that. Exactly. Well, it's, we just need that authentic truth that that I, I personally avoided for so long. So, well, Matt, thank you sure. so 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 much for coming on the show. Um, I'm grateful to you. I want to also thank Taylor McGaw again for sponsoring this episode. Taylor McGaw is a realtor here in Waco, Texas. So, if you're in the real estate market, please do look her up. Matt, thank you so much, and God bless you and your dad. Thank you. Bless you too. All right. Take care. Bye bye.
Thanks for listening to Purpose Driven Sobriety. Keep coming back. 